Welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. St. Anselm, a theologian in the high Middle Ages, once wrote, For I do not seek to understand that I may believe, but I believe in order to understand. For this also I believe, that unless I believed, I shall not understand. Boy, to think that one through, how different is the world if you believe there's a loving God that brought this into being? Or, to the contrary, whether you believe it's meaningless or dominated by demons or uh, ugly, power, crazy, narcissistic gods. What you think the world is determines so much about how you understand your life. So for St. Anselm, Christian belief was the way that he understood reality. And through his Christian belief, the truth of the world opened to him. Let's take a moment and consider the readings for the 20th Sunday of Ordinary Time. The Greek philosopher Plato, uh, in his famous book, The Republic, had a story about uh, how it is that human beings come to true knowledge and how they, it is that they're trapped in false knowledge. And the story is called Plato's Cave. So imagine that you're chained in this cave and you see reality and you can't really escape it. But one day you're able to get out of these chains. And although everybody else is fixated on these images of reality, you have managed to escape and move uphill. You see a light in the distance. You notice that there's these fires burning in the cave and they're throwing shadows on the wall and you recognize that these shadows are not reality. There's something beyond the fire and the images that are casting these shadows. And you make your way up and out of the cave and suddenly you see the world as it really is with the sun and the stars and everything. It is so different from what people take as reality. So immediately you go back into the cave because you want to tell everybody that they're not seeing it right. This is the position of the Christian evangelist. When they evangelize Jesus risen from the dead, that there's a purpose, an end, a point, what the Greeks would call a telos to life. We are heading towards something. Think of it as a goalpost, life in heaven. But what happens when you go back into your cave and you try to explain this to all these people who see the shadows on the wall and think that's reality? They don't see the truth behind it. So consider this dichotomy. What is the difference in believing that God exists versus believing in God? Believing God exists is like any other item of information. Uh, the deist, people like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, they believed God existed, but that he had really no intervention, nothing he was actually doing in the world. He was uh, this blind watchmaker, is uh, what a famous English theologian who was essentially a deist, William Paley, believed that he made the world like a wind-up toy, and it was just going on through the little program that, that God made. There's kind of a reality to that. 
except that it's a very impoverished reality because it leaves out the reality that God somehow is involved in this world. Um, so you've heard of Stephen Colbert. Stephen Colbert is a really famous uh, nighttime talk show host uh, and a very devout Catholic. He used to teach religious education. He's been very prominent. He told a story that was recounted in a book I read that I really liked called uh, the, the Good Life Book. The Good Life Method is the name of the book. The Good Life Method is written by two uh, Notre Dame philosophers. You can get it on a Amazon, but it's a great read about how to think about life and make decisions. So they tell this story about Stephen Colbert, and I'm going to read it to you because it was just so well written. When considering the deepest questions of philosophical theology, a comedian like Stephen Colbert might be a surprising figure to start with. But Colbert is well known for his religious convictions. He's likely the only major talk show host to have recited the Nicene Creed on cable te television at least twice. He may be the only person to have done that. He's at ease joking about his faith on air, but he's opened up on the topic in a more serious way on multiple occasions. Colbert's life has been shaped by tragedy. When he was just 10 years old, his father and two of his older brothers, Peter and Paul, died suddenly when Eastern Airlines Flight 212 crashed while attempting to land in Charlotte, North Carolina. The subsequent investigation showed that avoidable crew errors led to the accident, which killed 72 of the 82 people on board. Colbert was the youngest and the only child living at home at the time. He took on the role of keeping his mother's spirits up. In a widely watched interview with Anderson Cooper on CNN in 2019, Colbert opened up in a raw and emotional conversation about that chapter in his life and its philosophical significance. Cooper wonders how such a tragedy wouldn't destroy any confidence that God exists. And Colbert, somewhat surprisingly, replies with what sounds very much like an argument for God's existence. He explains that his basic disposition toward the world is gratitude. Quote, I'm very grateful to be alive, he says. And so that act, that impulse to be grateful, wants an object. That object I call God. That's my context for my existence, is that I am here to know God, love God, serve God. We might be happy with each other in this world and with him forever in the next, end quote. Of course, Colbert is quoting this last phrase directly from a version of the Catholic Catechism. Uh, you probably all know that's the Baltimore Catechism that we were brought up on in the 50s and the 60s and before. It's a great answer, though. What should we make of Colbert's argument according to these two Notre Dame philosophers? Clearly, this way of thinking has had an impact on his life. The response had a visceral effect on Cooper, who was grieving the recent loss of his own mother at the time of the interview. But the human mind finds comfort in many things. There's a world of difference between a psychological rationalization that helps with trauma and a rational truth-seeking argument. All of us have the obligation of seeking truth and shunning error. And yet, suppose we take Colbert at his word. Perhaps this argument goes something like this. When he looks out at the world, he's filled with gratitude and wonder. 
And it's not the naive enthusiasm of someone who never experienced pain or suffering. It's battle-tested, a feeling that arises in response to the frailty and brokenness and imperfection of human life, rather than in spite of it. Paraphrasing a view that J.R.R. Tolkien offers in a letter to fellow author, Colbert often asks, what punishments of God are not gifts? Suppose that you, like Colbert, you have this unshakable feeling of gratitude and you want to know why. So how you look at the world is going to be how you answer that question. Let's take a moment and let's consider Jesus' surprising statements in the gospel today in light of Stephen Colbert's witness to the beauty and gratitude he feels towards his creator and also the understanding of Plato's cave. Let's turn to the Gospels now. St. Anselm, if you remember, said, I believe in order to understand. Colbert's belief changes how he understands these tragedies in his life. He, like the prisoner in Plato's cave, thinks that through the experience of gratitude and wonder, he understands something different about tra tragedy and human imperfection and the existence of evil in the world that is lost on someone who does not see the world through the light of Christ crucified and risen from the dead. So that very same Jesus in Luke chapter 12 says this about his mission on earth. I came to cast fire upon the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how I am constrained until it's accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For henceforth in one house there will be five divided, uh, three against two and two against three. They'll be divided father against son and son against father mother against daughter and daughter against her mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. We have this idea that Jesus came to bring everybody together and he is the good shepherd. He does gather us in, but Pope Benedict said that fundamentally what Jesus came to do when he was incarnated was to bring us God, the truth about God, so that in that light, we will better understand who we are and what it means to know God and love God in this world and to serve him in order that we might be happy with him forever in the next, the world to come. How important it is that you really understand God in your life so that you're transformed in that knowledge. Otherwise, like in Plato's cave, what are you watching? Chaotic images on the wall or looking for false images of God that make all your dreams come true. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has allowed his chosen ones to suffer. That suffering is made present on the cross. The cross is the engine of change in the world that God himself would enter into suffering. So think of two things that Jesus says in this gospel. First, why is Jesus casting fire on the earth and what is the baptism, baptism with which he must be baptized? And second, he came to bring division. Why the necessity of division? 
maybe you can think this through yourself because you've been following him for a while. Here's my thoughts. Why is Jesus casting fire on the earth? First, the images of fire and water are ancient images throughout scripture. They do two things. Fire purifies gold, water gives life. Fire also burns down and destroys cities and people and water drowns. Remember the story of Noah. So fire and water is a two-edged sword. It's purification and it's destruction. In order to live at peace with God, we have to live, leave childish ways behind. That's what St. Paul says. We gotta get over these inadequate understandings of God in our life. And the way that you do it is you live your life with all its joys and sufferings. St. Peter said in chapter three of the second, his second letter, that heaven and earth will be destroyed by fire, which is a repeat of an ancient Jewish belief that the first time that God destroyed the earth with well, the flood, the next time it'll be a fire. These images of purification and destruction are behind what Jesus is talking about. Why he has to tear down the false images and reflect it on the wall of the cave so that he can lead us up into the sun to see the truth of it. You know, there's a parallel in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 36, where James and John, and you will probably remember this passage, asked Jesus if they can sit on his right and his left. And do you remember what Jesus says? He says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are, and we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right or my left is not mine to grant. So James, as you remember, is one of the first martyrs of the church. John lives and apparently dies of old age. So how following Jesus works on their life is very different, each for the salvation of, of those souls. Do you remember in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water, but there is one coming after me who is greater than I, whose thong of his sandal I'm not worthy to untie. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So these images of fire and water are present throughout the scriptures, and we think of them sacramentally. Ritually, we engage in death and life through water in the sacrament of baptism. Ritually, we engage with purification of fire in the sacrament of confirmation so that we might partake of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the source and the summit of the Christian faith. The reality of coming to Christ in his crucified body, blood separated from body there at the altar to understand what you're doing and coming forward to the Eucharist with gratitude is something of the whole ethos and sensibility of Stephen Colbert, who has been evangelizing in amazing ways. So fire and water, we have to let go of inadequate understandings of what it means to be a human being, to be God, so that we may embrace the life-giving reality of following Christ. We worthy of the cross he gives us. Suffering is part of our life. Suffering is a portal into deeper understanding. And I think 
as a Catholic priest listening to what Mr. Colbert said, boy, at a young age to have so much trauma and loss in your life and to come through it with what is truly valuable. And you know, like the losses I've had in my life. I believe through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and his resurrection that I'll meet the ones I love again. I hope you understand that that is what reality is. But in order to do that, you have to know how to serve God in this world, to love him with your whole heart so that you can be uh, with him in the next. Um, to go out of the darkness of this cave into the wonderful light of Christ. That Plato story is a great story that Christians have used. But the second part of the gospel is about division. Remember, Jesus is going to send father against son and son against father. He's really drawing on uh, imagery from the prophet Micah, who was talking about that in, as eschatology, that a division must be made. Jesus talks about it, right, when he separates the sheep from the goats, that you cannot let anything get between you and God, because not only your salvation, but the salvation of others depends on it. Stephen Colbert did not get his faith uh, his conversion story isn't that he went to college, met the right girl, married her, and then learned to love Jesus, or he was an adult and, you know, uh, had this great conversion experience. Stephen Colbert's understanding of the love of God was set up by his dad and his mom and his Catholic family in North Carolina, um, and that his understanding of how it is that he serves um, them and how he serves God, this forms his whole life. So, you know, the part about Jesus and division is interesting because in Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 2, he says that Jesus came to tear down the wall of division between the Jews and the Gentiles. But Jesus isn't talking in this passage in Luke chapter 12 about Jewish-Gentile um, Jewish uh, differences. He's talking about differences in family, difference in relationships. He says it over and over again. We can't put the identity that comes to us from family ahead of the identity that comes to us from God. You know, last week I talked about the idea of a forced choice. You're either with Jesus or you're against him. To do nothing about that decision is in fact making a decision against Christ. Uh, we're in a rock, between a rock and a hard place. Um, and the rational thing to do, my friends, is to believe. And so let's turn uh, for a minute. I want to share a story from my own family that I hope you'll see as something like Mr. Colbert's story. And it would be great if you thought about your own family and how it is that they were part in some maybe remote way or direct way in your own conversion to Christ. And then the role that you're playing in your own family of bringing people to the truth of the light of Christ. And that's what we'll do right now. St. Anselm said, I believe in order to understand. And I hope that you see that in the story of Stephen Colbert that he shared with the nation about the loss of his parents and how his belief in his gratitude having an object and that for him was proof of the existence of God, the God that is thoroughly lovable, that he's supposed to love and to serve him in this world, to be happy with him forever and the next. 
with his dad, his two brothers, and his mom, and all those he loves. This is a profound faith. It's the faith, it's the story of reality that Plato tells us in the story of the cave, that we've been invited up into the light. Well, St. Paul talks about it too, but he talks about it in a different way. Do you remember last week, St. Paul in the letter to the Hebrews said that faith is the realization of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. And then in that reading, he talks about the faith of Abraham and Sarah and Moses uh, and how it is they had, they had to leave a strange land. They had to trust in God's word about descendants. Um, they had to obey God, to put God ahead of all things, opened up their life to them. Well, in this week's reading from the book of Hebrews, um, Paul goes on about uh, these examples of faith in our life that help us to believe in order that we might understand, to look at those examples of faith I hope that we all have. I know I've had them. So here's what Paul says in the letter to the Hebrews. Brothers and sisters, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us rid ourselves of every burden and sin that clings to us while keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus and persevere in running the race that lies before us, the leader and perfecter of faith. For the sake of the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. Consider how he endured such opposition from sinners and has taken his seat at the right of the throne of God in order that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your struggle against sin. So Jesus had some negative examples in his life. Uh, the leadership at the temple, the Pharisees, the Roman authorities. He found people who believed him, disbelieved him, and mocked him. But Jesus is a witness to faith in God. This is one of the ways that Jesus saves us because he endures even death. It's why martyrs are such an important part of the cloud of witnesses that um, Paul talks about. But through the rest of the, the letter to the Hebrews, Paul makes clear who the witnesses are that he's talking about. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Abraham and Sarah's son, Jacob, the son of Isaac, Moses and the Israelites. He talks about the witness of Joshua and the Israelites who conquered the promised land, relying on, on God's word. Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho, relied on God, though she had never met him before, but she took that leap of faith because she was caught between her people and the Israelites, and she had to make a move. We all have to make a move. And then Paul talks about the judges, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. You could order the rest of them, like, um, like Diane, the great uh, female judge uh, in, the, in the book Judges. And then in the book of Kings, David and Samuel, he talks about the prophets, Daniel, Jeremiah, Elijah, and Isaiah. Remember, Hebrews is a letter written to Jewish Christian believers, trying to keep them faithful uh, to the Messiah. And then in chapter 11 of, um, of the book of Hebrews, he talks about the Maccabees. You know, the Protestants don't include one and two Maccabees in their Bible. It's part of the Apocrypha. But clearly in Hebrews, Paul is using Maccabees because the early church used Maccabees. That's why we have it in the Catholic Old Testament. And that's what he's talking about, this mom who watched his, her seven sons tortured and killed 
because they would not deny the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so in this book of um, uh, the letter of the Hebrews, uh, Paul is underlying what Jesus himself instructs us about the faith. Perseverance, run the right race, and martyrdom is the witness of Christ. Uh, Stephen Colbert is a martyr. He's a witness to Christ, not yet to the point of shedding blood. Um, but this obviously is something that is called of some Christians. Let me tell you a story. So in 1939, my dad graduated high school and wondered what he was going to do with his life. So he was trying to learn to type because he wanted to get a job working for Bush, uh, the beer brewery in St. Louis where he lived. He lived in East St. Louis. And uh, his teacher told him that there was always jobs for people who knew how to type. And so dad thought that was his way of going forward because um, college was just not a reality uh, given his family. It's like many families, just no way that he could afford to do that or that he really knew what he was going to do. But she said what he should do is try to get into the army. Then, because he was young and he was smart, and my dad was smart, he could maybe get into West Point prep school and from there get an appointment to West Point, where like her son had, where he'd get a college education. Dad thought that was a great idea. So he actually was in West Point prep school when the war broke out on December 7th, 1941. The next day they posted ways to get commissions in the army. And he's only a high school grad, but he saw this is the way to serve because I'm in the army and, um, and be an officer. So he ended up flying two tours in, um, in Europe. When he got out, he was a Catholic. He had converted when his sister wanted to marry a Catholic in East St. Louis. And dad went along and thought, ah, oh, the Catholic faith made more sense than anything he'd ever heard. When he was in that war in his, the 456th Squadron, uh, the 456, uh, that other Catholics were the ones that would go to Mass with him. And Dad had seen Catholics praying the Rosary during Mass because it's all in Latin. But these other guys showed him how to use the missile because no one had ever showed him how to use the missile. And so Dad put down the Rosary and started to use the missile. Well, he put down the Rosary till he left Mass, but Dad prayed the Rosary all the time. Dad prayed the rosary throughout our life as kids. So this rosary, this connection to Mary, was this consistent part of his spirituality. But it was also these guys in the squadron whose witness to him helped him to understand the Mass in a different way. So Dad became very, very dedicated to the Eucharist and led Eucharistic adoration teams of the Benedictine convent here in, in Tucson. It used to be on uh, on uh, Country Club. Now I see they're making it into a coffee shop, which is a tragedy, but there you have it. Um, so after Dad got out of that war, he used the GI Bill to go to S University of St. Louis, where he got his LLB in the law and started to practice law. Then Korea broke out, and he was called up to Korea. Well, he was a lawyer by then, and so he used to try cases defending servicemen being accused by the prosecutor for negligence. One guy um, had left a hard stand next to an, a B-29 engine, and when they cranked up the engine, it chopped up the hard stand, so they were going to court-martial this guy. And Dad defended him. While he was there, there was this really cute court reporter, this is going to be my mom, uh, in, the, in the court. Mom told me before she died 
that she knew something was up when dad showed up in the enlisted man's chapel for Catholic mass instead of going to the officer's chapel, which he'd been going to for mass. They knew each other for three months. Uh, dad rotated back to the States. They talked about getting married, promised themselves in marriage. Arnold's move fast when we move, if we ever move. And so mom came back two months later and they were married in June. Um, and started their, we're going to start their family. So this is the, well, this is the background to the story. So dad had this beautiful uh, eggshell blue, baby blue uh, Buick Roadmaster with a four big ho holes on each side of the hood, red interior convertible. He and mom hop in it, and they drive from Davis Monthan Air Force Base in Tucson, where he was stationed, and they're going to drive up to South Dakota to this little farm mom, one of the farms mom grew up on, so she could meet, he could meet her dad. And so, because he, dad didn't grow up in a particularly Catholic family. I think grandpa had been baptized Catholic, but he had never done much with it. And grandma, I think, converted to Catholicism after my dad and his sister and the kids converted. Um, but she was always kind of a, a Protestant. Neither grandma or grandpa, I remember particularly ever going to mass. But dad and mom were fervent about it. Well, anyway, here's the story. So they get up to South Dakota, and they're in this little farmhouse, and dad gets up in the middle of the night because he has to uh, make a call of nature. And he goes out in the dark, and uh, he trips right in the hall and falls flat on his face. He then expresses himself in the way American servicemen express themselves. And he turns around to my grandpa Walter, kneeling in the hall, praying the rosary in the dark in front of an image of our Blessed Lady. That image stuck with Dad about what a dad does. It was part of all these experiences of a cloud of witnesses that took Dad to a deep and very profound faith, which he has practiced to the end of his life. Are we that kind of example to others? Do we tell people, like Plato says, yelling up them to come to look in the light, or do we live in the light? Evangelization, in part, is being part of that cloud of witnesses by how it is that we live, the love we have towards others, the profound respect we have for their conversion, the prayerfulness we have with Christ. It looks like when we live like that, we've actually walked up out of the cave and we've seen the sun. So this has been Father John Arnold. This has been Oral Valley Catholic. If you like this podcast, give me a like, maybe encourage somebody else to listen. God bless you until next time. Bye-bye.